exciting, Jim. But not as we know it. This is big. This is Bashcast, episode number... One, eight, four. It is four minutes to 2pm on Thursday the 17th of December 2021. afternoon's Bashcast, we have a Christmas present stocking filler for you all as we welcome Matthew Trenhill on to the Bashcast. Trench needs no introduction, although I just introduced him. So bar humbug me. For this Christmas special, we are going to discuss England 20, Latvia nil, modelling expected goals, modelling both teams to score in big fame, underdog games, market compilation, and why you can't be a hero. Artificial intelligence in profiling customers, Markov chains in tennis modeling, how Nishikori wins without beating the closing line, the life cycle of a price, rebasing numbers in play and the advantages that can be had, Emma Radicanu, the softness of halftime numbers, and most importantly, exactly how did East 17's Brian Harvey run over his own foot? All of this and more coming up in this very festive Bashcast Christmas Chatter. Did you watch any of England women versus Latvia women? Uh, I didn't, but I do have uh, a sort of permanent interest betting related to women's football because it's a sort of a perennial pain point for bookmakers generally because while you sound like a, a misogynistic arsehole by saying it's a completely different sport from a from a modeling perspective in in a weird way it can be in that um my uh, my favorite observation was actually by i think simon shumpto did soconomics with another guy and he made the observation that by definition you can only have so much of the female population percentage-wise above six foot, and yet universally top goalkeepers, and obviously people will say, oh, you've forgotten about so-and-so, but universally top Premier League goal scorer, goalkeepers are sort of over six foot, huge arm spans, etc. And the women play, I believe, I could be correct to this, but almost um, universally on the same size goals in the name of... Um, you know, uh, sort of equality or, or whatever you want to say. 
And so you have certain countries also where just by demographics, maybe the percentage of people of a certain size or height is reduced. So I remember the game that was sort of the biggest fixation was watching the market moves in Asia for USA women against Thailand, which would have been in the last Women's World Cup, which did, did I think, finished 11-0. And I think there was even an attempt at one point by the USA team to deliberately make sure each person in the team scored, possibly. Um, I watched it, and it was athletes against non-athletes. It was very obvious on the television that these two teams should not be playing each other. And, and, and it's, it's funny because it then becomes a modelling question. It, you know, it, I, the weird thing is goal scoring is utterly independent for one team. You know, they're almost oppositionless. And yet it's 100% dependent for the other team as to whether basically they're allowed to score, whether by just complete sloppiness or they actually want them to score so it looks like well you know one thing i'll give credit to the women's game is is that there's no you know second place medals for trying right they're utterly ruthless time you know mm-hmm. watch women's champions leagues or whatever like that they they love nilling someone that there's no no mm-hmm. doubt about that and um one thing i've heard you talk about with sort of with interest is you know modeling both teams to score is one of the most like for me sort of one of the most interesting markets in that it's like all the like all the best markets it's colossally high margin great fun for the recreational punter but makers love taking it and by contrast by definition it sort of almost becomes the absolute sweet spot to target for for you know the the sort of the professional the expert punter in a sense um you know the the goals galore coupons of betfred may, may they rest in peace you know there were I, I, it's it's one of those things where it's like when you talk about Nebworth, Oasis playing, like if you took up everyone who says they were there, you know, four million people went to the concert. And it's the same with like goals galore, coupons, Betfred. People will be like, you know, it's impossible to meet a pro partner. Oh, mate, six figures I took out of that. You know, like everyone's just like, how's, how's Fred Doan got any money left? Like everyone made a million quid out of it, it seems like that. But these coupons ran for so long. So you must think to yourself, well, surely they were so good for Fred. Right, because why would you, you know, they're not complete idiots, you know, they're not going to just run the monthly report and say, well, lost another million on goals galore, we'll, we'll stop doing, you know. So it's, it's what those markets are sort of perfect. I love, I love it when there is sort of this duality of, you know, everyone thinks it's a fun bet and therefore bets it like in it once completely one sided, yes, all teams will score, yes, and then the other, the other sort of. You know the under underworld, sort of uh, the opposite, the opposing world, or whatever is constantly looking for the other the other side. But yeah, Before I, mean, I get into the modelling of it, can I ask about the goals galore? Because I don't know what you're talking about in terms of they had a very lucrative past for punters. What I can tell you is that in the last six to nine months, we've started monitoring the coupons with technology. But have, have we missed the boat here? Did something happen in the past? Oh, oh well, yeah. I mean, this is this is the delight. Uh, so, goals galore was a coupon, um, which you're, you're very familiar with. Those still is, um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, both sides will score a goal. So, mm-hmm. um, and you must choose. Was it uh, three? There was a number of games selected with the fixed odds payout for each game, mm-hmm. and they were basically you. You would have the whole list of goals on it, and and you could just take you know four games easily. Where the both teams to score was well beyond the you know the the standard payout the minimum know. odds yeah yeah it was, it was just it was just unbelievable and people you know because they were raking it in hand over fist for because people lo- I remember like speaking to just people 
you know, when I was filling them out in shops, you know, mm-hmm. people would, you know, you get a coupon and there'd be people next to you just like taking it out in front of you. Like, like there was a regular picked up coupon. <laughs> and so you're like, all oh, right. And people, people are really, really into this. Now I, I don't want to get ahead of my, maybe they were the first of the big bookmakers to do this, both teams to score coupon. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, when was this? Are you talking, is this in the 2010s or? Uh, I want to say even before that, you know, okay. maybe even, maybe even mid, mid noughties or something like mm-hmm. that. Um, but yeah, you know, and then people be like, and the funny thing is there were, I can't remember the names of the, team specific there were certain there were certain teams that just played the most open ended mm-hmm. football particularly like down the lower divisions like league 2 league 1 there were these teams that were just like all attack zero defense and you know they were just like you could just literally go th- and it got to the point where like so originally people would be like checking on betfair and like doing their own price and like oh these are the best ones it literally got to the point where people were like Right, I don't know who it was like Gillingham, Coventry, whoever. You know, like you just you literally went went yeah. through, like you know, bang, bang, bang. And there were people there who sort of like said, you know, it's it's weird when the edge is that large. You kind of almost get the, what have I missed? Right, you know, can't be this good. And so people almost stake it tentatively. Although yeah, the, yeah. The I... Most the most sort of optimal, the optimal pro punters. I don't. Have you seen these? Um, like normal distributed charts, like Twitter memes, where there's the guy who looks like a Neanderthal on the left, sort of, and the other <laughs> yes. guy looks like it's like yeah. you know, you know, and it's like the optimal, the optimal pro punter is sort of almost like the IQ eighty Forrest Gump sociopath, but who's given an edge and then just doesn't think any more about it and just absolutely hammers the crap out of it. And it's like there, there were certain people, lots of people you met who were like, and the funny thing is, is I think the, the weird thing about it was someone it got wind that they were pulling or changing the way they, I don't know if the coupon's still there. They may have just changed which matches go on it or the payout structure, but the edge, the edge went. But the funny thing is, is that there was this known cutoff date. And I heard of people literally like, fuck, I've, I've missed this. I've, I'm going to admit, I'm going to, I'm going to have not paid for my kid's education if I don't get on this now. <laughs> and so they like literally were running around shops with duffel bags. And the funny thing is, is then you'll hear of people in that time frame who just hit horrible variants. So they were 10 times staking it, what they'd ever staked it in their entire life, to only then go into a massive drawdown because yeah. for whatever reason, those things. So it, was, it, it just it sort of created this um, bizarre, uh, but yeah, but ever, ever, you know, ever since then, to be honest, both teams to score was, was interesting. And what, what I loved was like classic sort of modeler versus um, sort of common sense observation. Is I remember. Um, I was with a guy watching, you know, this sort of uh, markets on USA Thailand and that game, and um, and he said to me, I said, you know, oh, this um, this is basically both in scores, basically what price Thailand gets a goal, right? And he says, yeah, yeah. And I was like, okay. And I was there fiddling around with an Excel, you know, f- doing these kind of things, and he just went on like odds portal or soccer or something like that, and he just went through, yeah, as far as I can tell, like last ten games they've never scored or something like that, and it's like, and I was like, well, that doesn't mean they're like doesn't mean they're infinitely odds on to never score and it's like he just looked at me and went well it probably is roughly though isn't it and then just you know he he, he, he didn't he didn't overthink it he was just like yeah just never gonna just not gonna score yeah. bang bang but like you know and doing all sorts of things like you know taking the under half a goal and you know both teams to score like literally absolutely hammered it from every angle and i'm still there going like well if i put the xg in for 0.325 maybe like you know of course sometimes uh I say sometimes I, I'm made to feel in betting like overthinking is always the worst thing, but I, I'm convinced that sometimes thinking it through must help. But uh, more often that than question not, really that come that question sort of comes down to I've got an XG for the game, but look, are America or England going to score 
10 goals and then just say, that's enough. That's enough humiliation. Let's sit back. And if they sit back, that uh, allows a better opportunity of a goal for the opposition or are they just, or are they going to be ruthless? You know, I, I, I think the, the only chance in these situations that seems interesting from an in running perspective is there's going to be a disjointedness when there is the mass wholesale substitutions. If, if yeah. they just drip feed the subs on, then it probably doesn't ever become disjointed. But if you get the kind of almost international friendly style, five players off, five players on, I think providing they're not completely knackered from basically running around like headless chickens for the entire game, if they can just muster themselves to score a goal at that moment, that's sort of their best their best chance. But at the same time, there's the counter argument, I suppose, that fresh legs, people want to prove themselves. Like, if I'm the bloke who didn't score against San Marino, I'll be mugged off in the pub, you know, whatever it is. But, you know, it's like, I, I don't know, I, I can probably argue it for both ways. But I always feel like, you know, when the mass substitutions come in, the sort of the well-oiled machine goes a bit flat sometimes. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and if, if ever I was going to sort of try and look for a really big price of like, I don't know, over half a goal or both teams score, yes, I suppose that might be when I would um, try for it. But, you know, if, if they do the mass substitutions at like the 80th minute or something, chances are the other team's absolutely shagged and, you know, got no interest in trying to do anything, I suppose. But but, what must have been frustrating from an odds compiling perspective, I don't know if any bookmaker was offering in play. I mean, surely it comes a point where it's 8 0 at half time and the bookmakers turning around and go, we're not going to offer odds on the second half over under goals because we just can't mod. I don't know. Maybe maybe there were odds available and people cleaned up. One of the big issues from what I can see about these goals is um, they're so symmetrically distributed amongst the game. It's almost, you couldn't make it up. Three minutes, six minutes, nine minutes, 12 minutes. It's like every three minutes there was a goal almost evenly throughout the entire game. Um, well, I mean, you spoke about this, rebasing this is- as a, sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, and I had to watch. I was um, I was working at Sport Radar at the time, and and they were, you know, um, working for their their managed trading services, which was the uh, the sort of you know risk profiling, if you like, or customer profiling outsourcing division for for Sport Radar, and we we watched that game, and we weren't able to. We don't trade it. There's a live trader. He's in. Eastern Europe or, or Far East, potentially, Manila, somewhere like that. And he's he's trading the game live, and he's, he's, he's got a model in front of him that he's sort of got to adhere to. And he's, by and large, guided that he should stay in line with the rest of the bookmakers who offer it. So we're talking the, the 365s, the pinnacles of this world. That's his remit. That's his job. He's even evaluated at the end of the year by uh, sort of the mean squared error, if you like, difference between himself and the market. You know, they, the closer you can basically get to it, the better. So the problem he faces is when everyone's getting this wrong. Um, and we had to watch as, and I, I was sort of, because I originally started my life in spread betting, where it, it was never good enough to know whether A beats B. You had to know by how much mm-hmm. A, B beats B for spread betting. So we were always sort of um, alive to, to tail distributions. You know, what is the worst scenarios? And so we would often... Um, we would sort of often eat a bit of, you know, when things looked a bit all over the place, we'd often sort of go up a bit high to sort of test, is any smart person going to buy up here? Because if not, we can regress back. Because the way we made and he made money was regression to the mean. That is how, you know, people like early first, nothing better 
then you know third minute goal finishes one nil that's the absolute mm-hmm. you know phenomenal situation for us um so we were sort of knew that the the money printing came from mean regression i'll just check the- with that that's because third minute goal and then a load of money comes in for over goals and action and things to happen yeah and you that that's all sitting in your back pockets at the end of the game yeah, yeah. exactly yeah. so while, while nil nil was always the crown jewel of results optimal you know if you if you did have an early goal these could often lead to you know really fantastic situations um but yeah so so from a spread betting background i was looking at it with a, another friend who'd been in spread betting we were like thinking you've got to what we would call rebase the goals let's say in spread betting terms the the goals were i don't know 4.9 5.1 so expected goals is five um before the start of the match you know four goals in the first 20 minutes you're thinking well the starting price now is bollocks clearly mm-hmm. it's it's not a five goal xg game but the temptation was when you've got a nice like time decayed simulation in front of you the temptation is just to go oh yeah well you know it, it it'll regress you know and you think to yourself there's not going to be minus two goals for the rest of the game like how much <laughs> are you going to how much do you think it's going to regress so you've got to kind of do this rebase and the rebase is purely it, you're fishing, right? You, you like you see what you do is you might be like, right? I'm going to assume that this instead of a five goal game is actually an eight goal game. Can you imagine moving three three mm. goals in an Asian hand? Like, like so, I'm going to eight. And if the next bet is Mr. Shrewd who comes in and takes the overs, you're like, fuck, okay. But it's good because you know at that point you've got to realize those three goals are gone. You, you're eating that all that negative EV. I'm afraid that's that's gone. Put it in the back of your mind you're getting closer and closer to what the true expected goals for this game is now. But if, however, the first thing that does, is you get a load of sharp people coming in and taking in the under, then you're like, oh, okay, I've moved too far. And the problem is, is that everyone in bookmaking, certainly my era when we first started, lived in fear of redding up. If you're a Betfair trader or middling, if you're thinking in the US terms or whatever, everyone hated getting a negative middle. And so it was much easier to creep up and try and average yourself in. But averaging yourself in to something that's horrendous can often be the worst thing you can do. Sometimes you just have to take your medicine, reevaluate massively, and then try and find whether you've gone too far or not. Um, and, you know, that, that's sort of, I suppose, more classical, sort of proper trading. Rather, that, That's where the trader should earn their money, essentially, um, if, they're, if they're good. And I, the great example was there was a... a brilliant football trader when I was doing spread betting and he basically had so we're talking 2001 to 2007 or whatever he had La Liga um, and every Sunday night Sky only put Madrid or Barcelona on or I say Sky you know whoever the powers that be at TV headquarters in Spain are you know so he basically had to trade the Galacticos and like you know Barcelona week in week out and you know, to be able to successfully, you know, sometimes, you know, Barcelona, you know, if Barcelona only won 2-1, even though it was over two and a half goals, you know, if they looked like they were going to destroy them, you kind of, you managed to get, he was very good at basically trading successfully these games where you constantly needed to be alive to the fact that the game could fizzle and finish 2-0 or it could go bananas and everyone's just like, yeah, we're all going to score. It's like 7-1 kind of thing. And um, it's you know, some of the hardest stuff to trade. But I would say, you know, 
from my perspective, that sort of, you, you felt really rewarded in that sense. I remember like trading Rugby World Cup games, you know, you had an absolute minnow versus the All Blacks or whatever. And, and you felt really satisfied chiseling out, you know, a few grand on that. Then, you know, if you won like 50 grand when New Zealand got beaten by Japan or something, be like, oh, well done, mate. You know, what, what have you done there? The, you know, the massive underdogs won, chinned the favorite for you. You know, where's the skill? But to be able to chisel out some small earnings on on those kind of absolute score fests where normal distribution doesn't mean anything anymore. And, quite, you know, you, can, you can't almost can't distribute it anymore. And they're very bimodal because they either go massively towards expectation or they collapse. So a bimodal is like that sort of twin hut for those people listening. Like there's like normal if you think of normal distribution as being a bell curve, um, like the bimodal is when you've got this kind of two bells either side of the middle, which means that the weird thing is is that if you took thousands of bimodals and averaged them, it kind of looks like a bell. But then reality is each individual game either it blows out one direction or the other. So yeah, trading those kind of games is absolutely merciless. There's a lot. There's a few uh, football teams that have a. If you look at their distribution of games, um, a lot of teams it's a bell curve: zero, one, two, three, two, three being the most common number of goals in the game for both them and the opposition, and then it comes down to four or five. And then you have a few teams who it comes down to four or five, and for some reason it then jumps back up at the six, sevens, and eights. And it's like, why do you have so many of these very high-scoring games? Um, and factoring that into the XGs is difficult because it's not a it's not a normal distribution when you're projecting forward. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, so uh, you know, we've we've got to deal with, um, you know, our mean, our variance, our skew, because often you like look at it and you look at the histogram and it's like it's not it's not really normal. It's it's kind of like negative binomial. Sorry, I'm, I'm not. I feel like we're not going to dumb down this conversation, so I'll just keep on talking. In, in <laughs> yeah, no, matter. no, please. Yeah, you know, sort of, you know, it's sort of a bit skewed, and then we've got what's you know kurtosis, kurtosis excess, which is like how fat the tails are, and there is sort of what you know wide ranges of the football world where the sort of the tails kind of you know they, they fluctuate and the shapes different. I mean, the one that always drove me insane was corners, because corners mm. isn't isn't really poisson, isn't really normal. It's sort of it's just fucking hard. And like, when I look at like corners, you can do like a best fit for quick, easy calculation, you know, mm-hmm. like the kind of stuff that you use for the bet trackers and the, like the match center, you don't need it to be absolutely exquisite to get good EV value out of it. But I don't someone- believe that anybody, I, I, tell me if I'm wrong. I don't believe anybody has got a accurate model for predicting the number of corners in the game given the data set tends to go 9 10 9 10 22 9 10 9, you know what i mean yeah it, 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 exactly and and you know that the there someone did tell me that so what they you know what was always referred to me as cluster corners so corner awarded you know gets you know parried by goalkeeper second corner you would get these situations where you get two three corners at a time and the way to sort of do it like super optimally is to break a game down modeled into like 96 or 95 or however many you want to do one minute mini games. And then within each mini game, you can create this clustering effect of corners. And then you can kind of do this. Now, if you're doing it at that point, 
you're probably running some sort of bot against Asia and trying to just literally bet every 30 seconds into slightly off markets. And, you know, corn, corners once upon a time were quite aggressively traded in Asia, and now they're pretty gun-shy, I would say, compared to what they used to be. There's another funny situation where corners are an absolute moneymaker for Asian books against the fish and they're like terrible for them against the sharks. Um, yeah, I mean, anyway, but yeah, so corners is a tricky distribution. But when you look at these football teams, so we look at like Egyptian League. So Egyptian League averages like 1.9 goals or something like that. It's fucking hot. Um, <laughs> no, one, no one's really that good. And, um, you know, you get this kind of weird thing where, you know, when the goals get that low... It's like, it's sort of, the goals are low, but everyone, like, they're very common to get a 1-0. So it's like, it's sort of, Poisson wants to say zero goals is massively likely, even though it undercooks zero goals. And then, in fact, you know, it's like, it's, so that becomes a bit corrupted. Lower division Brazilian's tough, right? Because if you ever watched or had the misfortune to watch, like, Brazilian Serie B or C, you can sometimes get 60 minutes of like, do you know when a team's really backed off the player and they're like sort of at right back position, they're looking to spray a ball into the corner. Well, it basically looks like that almost all the time. As someone's just sort of strolling around with the ball at their feet. And they're all thinking it's 80% humidity here, 90%. Um, yeah. You know, the right altitude, so they can't breathe. 36 degrees, and um, I'm probably going to just expend all my energy when I think the other fuckers are tired enough in the 85th minute. Mm -hmm. And so you get, like, the first half goals versus second half goals modelling is brutal. You know, we get to the argument Mm -hmm. of, do you model the first half as an independent fixture almost to the full game? And then you also get this thing where the goal distributions in general are very brutally weird as well. Um, I think all roads. Can I ask you, do you model the first half independently to the full game generally, or does it depend on the game and the league? So, from from um, a bookmaker's perspective, um, I can't speak for for all bookmakers. You should you should look at your goal distribution. You know, you can get the league leagues vary, right? So, having some default in this league, forty eight percent are scored in the first half. This league, forty five percent, whatever. You can have the sort of default variation which gets you a slightly better number and you've got some margin to protect you. Then you can start looking at, if you wanted to do it better, you look at like, how is the goal division by different bands of favoritism? You know, do big favorites have their goals in the, you know, more in the second half, first half, whatever. Um, you, You know, you never really want to go to team granularity because that's just sort of noisy, smaller samples, et cetera. But you can, but in the end, you're sort of you're always searching for a bigger cluster of data. So mm-hmm. in a weird way, what you end up doing is, so like you know, you can have. I actually, because you messaged me, I actually actually looked this up, um, especially uh, especially because the the website no longer exists. Um, but uh, I did manage to go for the Wayback Machine to actually find. And now I can't find the fucking link. Anyway, the website was called Cybet.com. And they used to do these really all over the place kind of football predict. You look at it in like favorite 85%. And you look at the prices and be like, oh, you know, one point, you know, 1.7. And be like, oh, that seems a bit punchy. Um, but um, but yeah, okay. So yeah, so they did this for a long time in their website. This is sort of early um, maybe 2010s or something like that, they would actually listed the papers that they'd gone through. So, you know, 
classic. I mean, there was there is the one Bradley Terry or something like that before Dixon Coles, but Dixon Coles the one everyone loves and you know knows about. So 1996, Dixon Coles, you know, modelling association football schools. Then 97, Kenneth Massey, still around today actually, still has his own website. Statistical models applied for the ratings of sports teams, and then Leonard Norhell, dynamic ratings of sports teams in 99, 2000, revisiting statistical application of soccer by Emone Benoit. And then Demetrius Carlos and Ines Nsevoris, 2003, and I using bivariate Poisson models. So at this point, we started mm-hmm. trying to use bivariate Poisson more. Um, and then Ashburn and Culver in 2006, Bayesian mean value approach for ranking football teams. And then Carlos and Ionis come back again in 2007 with Bayesian modeling of football outcomes using Skellum distribution. And then eventually we get um, the Weeble distribution ones coming in or potentially the skewed binomial best fit ones coming in. And the papers went on and on and on. But I think... And, and all of these papers are trying to take a historical data set of goals for and against and come up with some sort of XG per team. That's what they're trying to achieve, isn't it? Yeah, they're, they're trying to forecast the match and they're trying to forecast the match by predicting score lines and they're trying to predict score lines by putting into a probability matrix with a set of rules, the expected goals and the goal expectancies for each of the different outcomes. Um, and I, I think what happens is, is that you get to the point where you're best fitting so much data over and over again, you kind of recognize that leagues that actually fit exactly your best fit, you do all right on if you're betting. Mm-hmm. But then the leagues that don't really fit into your best fit, you, you sort of, you fuck up completely. So if you look at that sort of, if you think of like all your leagues around the world being a, a distri- normal distribution, that fat part of the bell curve where all your averages create your, your fit, that's where you do really well, potentially. Although that is also the area where you're competing against all your fellow modelers most sort of... Well, this is what I was going to say. You say you, but you as both the uh, customer, well, the the punter and the bookmaker. I mean, English Premier League, lots of confidence in the modeling. Egyptian League 2, both consumer, punter and bookmaker have difficulty. Would that mean that it's slightly easier then to target Egyptian League 2? Absolutely. And this 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 is women's football, right? This is right. specifically international friendlies, classic example where the the best fit model breaks down. The very first alternative distribution model that the spread betting firm I worked for did was specifically for international friendlies because at the time we were market making into Betfair. So we were streaming fixed odds prices, back lay prices that we were creating into the exchanges, live football games sort of nonstop, so constantly publishing as time decay went down, we would publish new prices with amounts of volume. And the first place that we realized we just can't fucking take the pain anymore was international friendlies because they mm-hmm. behave so differently. So I would constantly advise people to... The great thing about an international friendly is that it's different, but also people will lay you a bet, right? Women's soccer is always a challenge. Although the Women's World Cup was a bit more like oh, this is on TV a bit more. kind of. So you kind of got a bit of a benefit of the doubt there. But international friendlies used to be an absolute perfect situation to be specialist on. And I even knew punters who really, you know, got the bag out, especially for international friendlies, because they were done, you know, really badly. Um, and, you know, the data sets are small. The teams are very different from one year to the next. You know, 
all this kind of stuff, managerial changes. It was like really hard to just get a good model for international football. You know, that's just generally true. And international friendlies was like the absolute ugly stepson of international football. You know, it was like the, you know, absolute, you know, toughest to do. But you got to the point where you were like, right, this huge best fit I've got, whichever distribution method you've used, is good for most. But these pain points, I'm now going to have to look at creating a modified distribution. It may use a much smaller set of games, but it's going to be better than getting whipped using the the big global average one. I mean, some of those sets of data are going to be absolutely tiny, right? They're going to be absolutely tiny. So what you have to do is you have to, you know, when you have like those scatter plots where there's a big cluster of data in the middle and then at each end of it, there's like, you know, a handful of games. Well, you have to chop off part of that big blob in the middle towards the end you are. And then you rely on that to be a better projection of the areas where there's not much data than using the absolute heart of the big blot. So basically, if you, if you do something similar to, I don't know, depending on how mathematical the listeners are, do something like K-clustering. So, you know, you're going to get your sort of nearest neighbor's blocks of data. But if you say, like, I need it to be only four clusters, it'll start going, oh, right, okay, well, I've got to include some of the fringe from the big blot in my sample to get the sample size up big enough. But that kind of, rather than using the whole data set, now, one way to do this is instead of conceptualizing games in terms of I'm going to build a international friendly model or I'm going to build a women's soccer model or whatever, you can just look at it from historical, I'm going to cluster all games with 2.5 to 2.7 expected goals as its own cluster. Mm -hmm. I'm going to cluster all games which have, and you may get higher up. So when we look at like the San Marino games, basically what I'm clustering is probably games that had six goals or more in them expected or whatever it may be. You know, people forget we're getting so much soccer data now, so many leagues being played. You know, is a six goal favorite in some Tim Pot League in Australia the same as you know a six goal favorite in a champions league qualifier no but you know it helps with the big data set yeah we're we're trying to get something a better approximation of behavior Mm -hmm. and you know essentially still human psychology is roughly similar and what we're trying to capture is how people who already know that they are overwhelmingly dominant how do they behave Mm -hmm. and you know once upon a time you know great example would be um NFL coaching, you know, 70s, 80s or whatever, there was almost this inherent mercy rule built into the psychology. It was not good to, quote, run up the score. And then Bill Belichick came in and was just like with the Patriots, was just like, fuck you, you know, we're going to pound you to the ground. And we start to get a sort of slight momentum shift differently. But like by clustering all these games, we're trying to get a feel for how human beings, when they're already, you know, five goals up how do they generally feel about beating up the team even more and uh, what we learned there is that uh, women have a very distant psychology to men in this regard i would argue <laughs> um but um but 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 yeah so you, you you tend to try and find bare minimum data size set to make a meaningful prediction but you know you're you are playing at the fringes of what is acceptable in that situation. But the longer we go, the more the more chance we'll get enough games in these sets. You know, I mean, they seem determined not to do like uh, 
a second tier of World Cup qualifiers, don't they? So, um, you know, I presume we'll continue to see San Marino and whoever. Yeah, you know, it seems get... pointless. But then, for the for we, as a as a as a punter, I should be embracing it. Listen, just before I completely leave the the, the topic of um, the XGs, because I, I I do want to ask a very specific question that I do not know the answer to, and perhaps there isn't one. Um, but I, I'm interested in your thoughts. Um, so let's say I've got my um, expected goals for both teams, um, and I I can split the halftime. Um, first half, second half distribution, you know, 56, 44 or whatever it is. I, I maybe choose a league-specific distribution of goals between first half and second half. So I've got that. I could use my Skellum distribution to um, maybe work out a winner for the first half and a winner for the second half. And we spoke, are those two events modeled by the bookmakers completely in um or the traders or the compilers or even the shop punters you know completely independent or is there an element of if you've already won the first half then you're going to take your foot off the gas a little bit in the second half and so winning the not independent events and there needs to be something brought into the second half that relate back relates back to what the first half result was so there's there's like an evolution right so at the base level you know, bookmakers or odds providers who haven't put a huge amount of effort into it. They've just taken the percentage first half, second half goals, done the matrix for, for them, and, and that's that. They haven't assumed a dynamic element between if sets of scores, you know, because you need simulation at this point. If sets of scores mm. A have happened, sets of B scores are more likely or less likely. Um, so you won't have that. Are there people who deliberately model just the first half? Yes. I definitely know people who have focused because, again, for a long time, Asia didn't do first half. We're talking way back. But, you know, there was a good period of time where they didn't do first half markets. And then they started doing them. And they originally, in true classical style, were like, well, 50% of the goals must come in the first half. 50% must come in the second half. (laughs) Sure. You know, so this got hammered in. And then people sort of really focused on it as um, a um, a way of beating the market. And then you get the the dawn of live models meant that to build a live model, you had to find a way to model what was going on in the game minute by minute. Mm-hmm. And so at that point, you then had built your time decay and your distributions. And at that point, you could then chop down all those little mini poissons in from a 90-minute poisson into a one-minute poisson kind of thing. And then you could create sort of effectively either sort of a brutalized <laughs> to do it by Monte Carlo isn't right but you can almost create um, like if you think of a sort of binary zero one switch you kind of can get this Markov chain effect right so minute one was there a goal yes no minute two was there a goal yes no minute three yes there was a goal it was to the home team okay what are the most likely events now going into minute four you know it kind of you can basically then extrapolate out momentum basis that so if you can extrapolate momentum so when someone goes one nil up they are more or less likely to sit on the lead versus you know push on for another goal when you get momentum into the chains, you can then go all the way. Like, do you need to do this to, you know, you know, beat the markets and make a good, you know, amount of money? No, you don't. But if you want to be Tony Bloom wealthy, you absolutely yeah. fucking do. You know, so um, <laughs> so it's it's one of those things where, you know, I I would say, you know, it's a relative game. 
you know, get get good enough to beat your chosen opponent. But you know, if you want to go to the, you know, if you want to try and future proof yourself, you you know, with all sports, how you come up with your pre live odds should be basically your live odds set to minute zero or play, you know, zero points in tennis, whatever it may be. That's how you should be doing it ultimately. And then how much you break up that live model is as small as you can fucking go with your processing power and your mathematical skill. You know, tennis is great, right? Because you've got point by point. You've got a limited range of like limited horizon of possibilities. Football, grim, multiple yeah. Yeah. yeah so tennis your markov chains are well i mean they're finite and everything but you can see the, the the different permutations in almost in your head with tennis with football a lot of different things can happen especially if you go minute by minute or 30 second by 30 second yeah it's brutal and imagine imagine um imagine person shot on target at goalkeeper goalkeeper parries person hits ball again keeper parries again goes for corner one minute two shots on target corner Mm -hmm. now i need to look at my spatial matrix of like markov accounts like so historically how many games have had in their 13th minute you know two shots on target with a you know it's getting tasty now right but you know i (laughs) i I can only i can only describe the lengths that people are going to i is this within my capabilities absolutely not um you know and to be honest, if I if I was, my secretary would have told you I'm not available for this interview. Um, <laughs> but, you know, but you know, as it is, like you know, so you can you sort of if you're thinking to yourself, oh my god, like that's such a huge space. How do you do it? Well, you get into areas of how do people do these kind of huge problems in worlds beyond something as trivial as sports betting. Mm-hmm. And it's like they they create these kind of fuzzy areas. Like for, I'll give you a basic example: is you curtail your calculations don't you when the probability of like 12 2 is very small whatever right now imagine if you know within your live space you create this fuzzy area where we know there's possibility outcomes there but we're not even going to look at them we're going to assume that their percentage is zero so you already shrink your space and actually by shrinking down the amount of time you model there's only so much that can happen in a football game because you reset for a goal or whatever within a minute say so in a mm-hmm. weird way, by shrinking, by chopping out a lot of unlikely shit and by shrinking down the individual segments, the bites that you look at, it's still a really narrow hard down your search space. It's a really hard problem, right? But it's just, you know, it is, you know, th- this is this is what you can, can do if you want to take over the world. Is, right? that, is that what you were trying to apply the artificial intelligence at Sport Raider towards that kind of problem? No. Oh, no, no. So, I mean, I mean... Well, for one, I, I got to ask: How do you feel about the phrase "artificial intelligence"? Oh, it's the most commonly misused phrase in the entire world. I, most people who have never sat down and tried to uh, structure um, some—it's it, a—it is a mathematical field. It's not a robot with eyes glistening. And m- most people think of machine learning, the Terminator, the clever, and everything like that. And uh, uh, it, it is a commonly misunderstood phrase: artificial intelligence. Yeah, so so I I would say that, you know, from a from a, from a bookmaker's perspective, we're we're talking predominantly you know classification methods. We're looking at 
So, so it is. It is sort of. I, people love to say machine learning, right? Because it's a buzzword. But it's you know, mm. it, it's a clever way of doing lots of linear regressions, or, or maybe not linear, but you know, regression analysis. Um, you know, we can talk about. You know, the people would say, um, uh, what's it called? Genetic. You know, this idea that you know, each set of data breeds another set of data. It basically we're asking ourselves in this massive data set, you know is this a thing and if it is a thing how predictive is it what what percentage of it should be combined kind of thing so with you know from our perspective at sport radar we throw a huge amount of bet data like the bet the bet pool was like well over a billion bets from all the operators combined so you throw this in and you're like right so which factor is important for determining how sharp a customer is and if it is a factor, how predictive is it? And, you know, how much should it be considered? And you also have this element of combi- combi- I, combination metrics. I'll, I'll just go for as a, I don't, okay. know, I don't know really. But the idea is, is that um, what would be, um, would be any, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use some, um, so, okay. Let's say uh, you were trying to say how good a tennis player was, and you threw in loads of data, like how many aces per match they have, you know, how their service points win, all this kind of stuff. And then let's say you put in um, height of the tennis player as one of your um, as one of your fields. So you think to yourself, like height maybe come out as being not particularly predictive necessarily of how good a tennis player is. Then what you might do is okay. What if I put in height relative to the height of the net? You know, maybe, you know, there is an element there. Now, what if I put in height relative to the player they play against? If there's a big height differential, is that got something predictive? And then if I look at height differential relative to the net versus opponents on different serve, you know, at some point, can I get data that is inherently non non-predictive? Can I combine it with other factors, or you know? So another classic example: and, and the more factors you add in, the harder it becomes to start combining these together, mm. because it's. I think it's something called an NP-hard problem, meaning that the more variables you add in, these the combinations explode into something almost unmanageable. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But I, I do, I do find the, the real. Um, I suppose, you know that. The classic example of sort of, I guess, most people now for current form think in terms of like this sort of smooth curve. So most most recent thing is the most important, blah, blah, blah. But then if you wanted to sort of look at how many games into the beginning of a season do I get that? You know, so you might run this big machine learning exercise with after game one form, after game two form, after game three form. And like you may find that Okay, so game one and two is predictive, but maybe when we get beyond that, da da da, and then it's like, okay, well, what if I created a new category called game one to three, or these kind of things? And the, the funny thing is, is that when people talk about data mining, it's not it's not just about my, you're not just mining your existing data, but you can end up trying to create categories that are inherently categories produced by your own mining almost. So you're kind of almost like I'm trying. I convinced this is a thing. 
I'm going to prove it's a thing until I find a, you know, and, and the thing is often they have really strong narratives behind them. Like, so people are like, I know for a fact that, you know, people who are taller when they play on hard will have, you know, inherently a better chance of serving whatever, you know, whatever. Like, And they, they, come, they become sort of wedded to this idea of somehow proving the narrative with the data kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, in terms of what we were doing with these big data sets and, and sort of the uh, the neural nets for um, for Sport Radar, it was entirely like finding out, you know, basically uh, what makes a, a customer smart, essentially. Profiling. Uh, yeah, profiling. And um, invariably, it just revolved around, um, I mean, I can give you the, you know, the, the most predictive thing. <laughs> well, the most predictive thing was overall when you look at a large data set which is you know interesting is do they play single or a multiple bet simple as that mm-hmm. so single people are inherently they they you know coefficient wise just like it's like the himalayas versus you know like a molehill so straight away you can see why people talk about like is it better to put accumulator through bookmakers to disguise your bets this is sort of you know in inherently, you know, they make better margin always on multiple bets. So their prior in their own heads belief is always multiples equals good. Um, now this seems it seems counterintuitive to me. Possibly, I don't know why. Just because maybe I've been doing it long enough. But people who are doing this professionally, who who parlay, who compound, who put multiples together, are doing it because they're compounding value and to get around stake restrictions it's so much easier to stake higher when you're putting multiples together but you're saying that the artificial intelligence was suggesting that placing these singles was the biggest indicator of a sharp versus recreational punter yeah overall and and to be honest if you look at it in terms of numerical population size you know it's what is the probability that someone randomly selected from a thousand people who placed lots of multiple bets is sharp. It is, it is a tiny fraction of the percentage of people because lots of people like playing, placing multiple bets. Now, if you dramatically shrunk your category size and said, what percentage of people who place really large multiple size bets. Uh-huh. <coughs> then then are, you get um, into a new Venn diagram. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's sort of a new thing, but yeah. So let's step one, multiple or single step two, live versus pre-match. Simple as that. Again, pre-match holds were, or, you know, margins made were much slower, lower than live. Live is an emotional state where it's harder to compare prices. Um, so, and and pre-match is a state where it's easy to check for arbitrage, check for price discrepancy, um, and uh, then you know the final icing on the cake is: do you play um, <clears throat> derivative markets versus you know versus core markets? So we actually sat there and we said, right, so if you find a way to place live multiples on derivative, on, on core markets, sorry, so, you know, the square is three categories. If you can find a way to do that, then theoretically our algorithm would be blind to you indefinitely. So, you know, you're thinking to yourself, right, well, I'm, I'm pretty sure I can find enough live ARBs on, you know, uh, football games, you know, just like comparing Betfair's lay price or whatever on a football three-way, you know, can I find trebles at any given time on a Saturday where there's three matches across a bookmaker? And like, we thought to yourself, yeah, it's probably doable. Now, how executable is it? 
in terms of getting that bet on with the time delays, you know, etc. But, you know, th- theoretically, there's a bet that looks so fucking stupid, it should last forever. Um, you know, but, uh, but yeah, I, I've yet to deploy that um, in, in any in any meaningful, meaningful way. But, um, <clears throat> but yes, according, according to the algorithm, you know, the, the smartest person in the world places, oh, yeah, sorry, the final category that was predictive was how far away from kickoff. So basically, I, I was I was literally going to ask you that question. I was going to ask, was there any um, relationship um, uh, in the life cycle of the market between you know when the odds first go up and kickoff? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And it's near. It, to be honest, we it was so dramatic close to kickoff. It really showed how overly aggressive bookmakers were in sort of, I suppose, restricting people who, who place bets close to kickoff. Dramatic which like, way around? Like, as in the hold went up so much higher close we got to kickoff for the bookmaker. So, you know, the less, vo- the more price discovery has happened, the less volatility within the market, the harder it was to be. So, but then I would argue that any bookmaker who took that advice as read then faces their situation where if there's a one-point arbor bet fair five minutes for kickoff, they might just sit there going, yep, fine here, everything's good, we don't care. <laughs> as, the, as the building burns around them. Right. So you're saying when the price first goes up, the, the brave person that I heard a quote from you, there's no place for heroes. Every All the odds compilers know the numbers, but they're not going first live with them. Um, but someone puts a, a premiership game up on a Monday, those people that are going in and taking those Monday prices are on average sharper customers than the recreational customers. They are on average the people with the highest uh, margins. Are they? This, you know, are we talking sharpness in terms of sheer cognitive capacity? They're probably the smartest people. Who are the people who make money in the hardest situations? Um, are probably those people. You know, the people who are market making on Betfair, taking on all comers you know, not able to restrict anyone, just literally their models against the world. Those people are pretty bloody smart. Um, so, you know, is that person who goes to the early price, etc., only bets in singles, only bets on tricky markets, are they particularly sharp? Well, you can say that it's sharp to know where your edge is biggest, right? But at the same time, that's also the place where it's easiest to beat. So your hold is, you know, contextually, Anyone who bets really, it's like this idea that, like, if I bet overnight prices on horses, people often say, like, anyone can beat it, kind of thing. Um, so, you know, like, how much better are they than the median person who bets in the same circumstances as then? You know, pro- probably everyone's all equally chopping it off, I imagine. But, um, so do you, do you have any explanation of what happened to the horse racing markets and the overnight prices? And because is it, it is now the case that money just comes in the last five minutes and, it's dead up until then. And how long ago was it that we were seeing money come in overnight and in the morning and so on? Do you, do you want to talk in terms of Betfair or bookmakers or both? Let's do both. Yeah, let's go. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so I mean, you know, overnight pricing, something that's happened in, in my lifetime, you know, it, it didn't, it, you know, it didn't exist. Sorry, in my bookmaking career, you know, it didn't exist sort of, before I, I imagine Bet three six five were the first to do it um, on a day by day basis in I don't know mid to late two thousands I guess probably um, and um, I do wonder if because at one point you know Betfair was just literally just because just because you've only got so much manpower to do it was setting up the following day's racing markets 
um, as you know, as soon as the existing days markets were done, or or even at some point, I think they started setting up maybe one or two days in advance of you know you know whenever the forty eight hour decks were or whatever it was. Anyway, so you had boxes that were empty, and then there were probably some people who were still feeling around the betfair markets then who started to say, oh well, empty boxes. Bot says my price is you know I've got the non-runner rule in Betfair, so I can, you know, even if there's a non-runner, you know, relatively speaking, my prices are my prices, you know, just remove a horse, it reevaluates it. Um, so, you know, I can go up with pricing. And there probably were people who were like, um, thinking to themselves, I, I make good money doing, doing horses, you know, market making horses, does it really matter? When I go up with it, you know, I, I'm I'm good at what I do. I can I can sort of roll with the roll with the punches kind of thing. And then I picture bookmakers going, do you know what? You know, there's you know, uh, it's not got big size, but there's sort of you know, there's almost like a tissue available on the exchanges quite early. You know, I mean, once upon a time, nine o'clock was quite liquid in Betfair, if we can believe that or not. Um, and so, but then, yeah, Bet365 sort of ramped up the game to the extreme by going up with the prices. And I think the philosophy, so Bet365 Bet are a lot more committed to price discovery than people give them give give them credit for, really. They want a product that's very appealing to the recreational better. But at the same time, they are more conscious than people realize as to the importance of doing some pricing you know they employ a lot of people to come up with prices and to my knowledge from speaking to someone who did horses at, at bet365 you know you, you you come up with your your prices and they're allowed to give notes to the the risk managers the people who would adjust odds basis the the bets and so there'd be things like i don't know if you can picture barney curly you know Mm. May he rest in peace. You know, like Curly's horses. If we see action on these, please slash odds in in half. You know, yeah, blah blah yeah. blah, kind of thing. So you could sort of put notes, but generally, after a while, it's like, well, the money's going to dictate it. Betfair kicks in. Arbor's come in, and you know, you know, Arbor's back then. Everyone Arbing's now match betting. Now, of course, it's, it's no longer mm. Arbing. Apparently, you know, and and you know, we sort of get um, we get nudged in, and it all. It all sort of goes there. And I think the idea is is that at one point the idea most definitely about three six five was that like if we can get if we eat X thousand pounds of negative EV or hundreds of pounds, I don't know how much it would be. Because they went up with very small they knew enough to go up with small limits, right? So it's yeah. like if if we go up with and it's prisoner's dilemma, like people think like going up with small limits is like you know, some sort of fool's errand. No, it's just fucking exactly the right thing to do, right? You know, because there's always someone out there who wants 20 quid each way on a massively wrong price. Hell, there's someone out there who wants a fiver each way on a massively wrong price, probably. So, so this isn't specific to horse racing. Every price that goes up early doors, the limits are lowest then than they will well, be throughout the life cycle of that price being up. You certainly see that in the in the exchange in terms of liquidity. Should bookmakers mm -hmm. be doing it that way? Absolutely, they should. Do bookmakers have old systems now which don't even allow you to change what you bet to throughout time? They still exist, right? So Amazing. So, amazing. Yeah, amazing. But um, anyway, so, so yeah, so overnight horse racing, we've got this thing where I'm, I'm assuming they've made a calculation in their heads as we can eat this much negative EV to then be able to take a decent-sized bet theoretically 
from someone, and I just know people listening to this have been going like, bet three six five, don't take a serious bet, you know, blah blah blah. It's like, all right, I get that, but you know, broadly, you know, if you want to feel happy from someone who looks kind of not very sharp but wants to have two hundred quid each way at a ten to one shot at nine thirty in the morning, the only way you can ever feel comfortable enough to do that is by having done some price discovery. Eating some negative yeah. EV overnight to the yeah. arbors shaping it and so on. And yeah. you may you may say nowadays we would laugh at the idea that anyone who bets two hundred pound each way at a ten to one shot nine thirty would be a good customer. But Bet three six five were literally operating in a different world. They had literally the advantage the, the advantage Bet three six five had over the online betting world at one point was was just like daylight. You know, it was like so large. And they were getting customers that no one even realized were out there to be customers. You know, that I dare say they were probably experimenting with things that other bookmakers just like would shrivel up in fear at the thought of doing. Mm-hmm. Um, once you've put out a product like Overnight Racing, how do you row back on it? It's really bloody hard in a large corporate environment to row back on. You know, <laughs> right now we're seeing this an example, you know, a government level, right? It's really hard to row back on a shit idea. So oh, people, because you have to put your head over above the parapet, right? So you're then culpable for that decision if it goes wrong. It's easier just to carry on with a poor performing product or a poor performing idea. So, yeah. So now, you know, do, do they get the same advantage now that Betfair liquidity is what I, I saw some chart there? Was it like 90% in the last four minutes or something stupid i don't know whatever it is now it's like is there any are they getting anything out of overnight horse racing seems very doubtful to me um but um it it, it's it's weird in a a sense that um you feel like someone's got to go up right and it's like you know i i think i think the weird thing is is that um no no one wants to be first and i i i kind of admire the people I, it's easy to scorn the people as a bookmaker who's been a bookmaker a long time. People who got first as like no value in that, mate. And then at the same time, you think to yourself, well, if one of us doesn't do the stupid thing, then we don't have a business because <laughs> everyone wants to get a marker in them in their mind. That, that's why I mean, it's <clears throat> it's so advantageous as a bookmaker to get multiple external opinions. You know, at, like horse racing. Let's look. I mean, so we've got. The Racing Post does a forecast of odds. It's, you know, it's not great, but every race has a forecast of odds, what they think the odds are going to be. Timeform does it. So Timeform, you get it sort of free with a login, registering on Betfair, whatever. So you've got Timeform. You've got Proform. Uh, you've got, uh, was it GG's? Is it uh, Matt Bisogno's got something? I think it's got a forecast in it. Uh, Raceform. You know, you've got all these things. And what people massively underestimate is all you're doing is when you're waiting for another bookmaker to go up with is you're just looking for one other set of opinions and you're hoping to be like, Oh God, it's half the price that horse that I was. What have I missed? Right. Okay. Let's alternatively take a variety of different other sources often freely available out there um, or very cheaply available. And let's just decide, well, we'll combine these. And you know what? It's not that hard over time to see who's got the best, um, you know, whose who's predictions are better than others and whose predictions are better than others in certain situations. So I don't know, the guy who does racing post, like flat two-year-old maidens, maybe an absolute god. He maybe got it by the bollocks. And then time forms class six handicap guy, maybe, you know, you know, you can play around with these utterly free data sources. Like, like everyone thinks that like free, anything where there's a lot of free information is really hard to beat. 
but never underestimate how unimaginative people have been in using and manipulating that free information is yeah. would be my argument on that. Um, with the horse racing, I had a little, um, I have a lot of data and the, the, the tracker that I've had um, uh, up for the last year, and I did a little review of it. And something jumped out and surprised, small sample sizes, but um, there seemed to be a little bit of a pattern. And um, it wasn't just in horse racing. My ROI on um, football um, match odds um, without compounding or anything like that, one or 2% in the last few years. Uh, first goal scorers around about 5%. Um, uh, horse racing was about six or seven percent, but then if I chopped up the odds in horse racing, the lower horses were three, four percent, the higher horses up at 20, 30 percent, and my golf is up at 20, 30 percent as well. And I I hadn't noticed the pattern well, I hadn't associated the fact that there might have been a fundamental reason behind this, and then. You saw my blog and got in touch and said, um, this isn't, um, there's nothing going on here uh, about luck. This is fundamental mathematics. And to this, and I read Joseph Bookdale's book, Monte Carlo or Bust, where he says the same thing. There is, if you bet at higher odds, you can expect higher ROI. And to this day, I can't get my mathematical brain around it. Are you able to explain that concept at all? I, I don't know if I'm able to explain it in terms of something that would stand up to rigorous mathematical analysis, but I can sort of explain the way I see it. So at its sort of most um, most sort of basic in my head is, let's, let's take example, something like the football. Okay. So with football, if you um, were to take your XG calculations, and let's say you had a both teams to score market, which was priced up at 50-50, you made it 50% yes, 50% no. Now, XG movement required to move from 50 to 51% is a much larger XG difference you have to make than if you had both teams to score 90% and 10%. So to get from 10% to 11%, so effectively, you know, uh, you know, uh, nine, uh, nine to one to eight to one, whatever, like, you know, from 10% to 11%, that requires very small input model error in order to create something that is a 10% ROI bet. However, you need a much larger discrepancy around like a pick'em both teams to score price in expected goal calculation. So, you know, when we're talking about like Andorra, are they in for 0.25 goals or 0.27 goals? Well, you can actually go from 0.25 being a value bet on Betfair to 0.27 being a value lay almost. You know, it requires, there's very small, it's like a, you know, screwdriver opening a can of paint, you know, leverage, like small movements one end create big movements um, at the other. Which why, that's why there's a range of prices for things like Andorra to win and both teams to score from 28 to 1 all the way up to 300 to 1, which exactly. um, it's, it's the same thing. It's marginal differences in the modeling make these very, very large differences in the, in the odds. So, so if we think of bigger odds inherently being more susceptible to minor adjustments in model input error, the more susceptible they are Theoretically, the less confident, the less likely something is to happen, the more it is prone to being wildly different in odds A divided by odds B 
You know, this mm. is what I always think in terms of implied probability. Mm. Like if someone tells me like, oh, you know, this 100 to 1 goal for I make 66 to 1 is a massive bet. All I'm thinking in my head is, oh, half a percent, Monte Carlo yeah. simulation. That's like probably 0.1 of a strokes gained. Like how likely is it that your estimation is off by half a stroke over four rounds? Quite like, you know, like my brain goes into that whole, that's, that's what I like about it. Whereas if it's the same percentage difference, but all the way down at evens, it's a completely different set of circumstances. Exactly. And and the one thing that sort of, sort of exp- you know, shows this is Kelly staking, right? You're suddenly thinking, right, how much am I having on a Kelly bet at 1% implied probability differential at Pickham versus a 1% implied probability differential at 10s? You know, it's sort of, it all, it all sort of goes around that. And, and one thing I would say is that if people think of, a liquid Betfair football market, two-way market, let, or not even that, it go, obviously goes all the way down, but let's say it's 102%. I always think the market is at this level of confidence that it thinks it only needs to protect itself 2%. So what is the chance that you can override all of that and beat it by more than 2% the other side? If you think of it almost like as a flipping flipping scenario how how likely is it do you think if there's like 10 grand on each side on betfair at one or two or whatever how likely is it at that point that you not only have something that is better than their fair price but better than you know can win by more than it's you know i i'm confident enough that we're as good as each other and not only am i as confident enough that we're as good as each other i'm confident enough to beat you by the same amount or more than you think you can beat me at and your price is the product of 5,000 opinions and my price of the product of one picture. So I always think in terms of what is my cap, essentially, you know, mm. on, on the inverse. When we think of horse racing, I mean, sadly, just because the way each way terms now are up to probably about, you know, I think I looked at it the other day, I think if you took like the median odds checker price, you're probably looking at about 2% margin allocated per runner. Horse racing is one of these things that very classically bookmakers price up thinking in terms of or they used to you know how much percent per runner do i add to book you know so if i have a 10 runner race you know i might price it to 115 once upon a time one half percent a runner but now we're sort of each way terms mean that we're inflating this more and getting out to sort of two percent a runner whatever it may be so i'm thinking to myself okay so my 10 to 1 shot is nine percent so they've added two percent onto that so two percent you know so right so that point so they must think it's seven percent because they've added two percent on so realistically you know two percent the other side is seven percent five percent nine to one versus you know uh 20 to one you know whatever you're thinking yourself right well nine to one twenty one divide a through b like suddenly we've got huge roi it's the same with golf and the, and the weird thing is is that the the sort of the highest roi you should probably aim for almost becomes 50 percent i would say of the margin you bet into if the margin is a product of the confidence of the market. So if I'm betting into something that's 1.91 both sides, which is 104.7%, in my mind, which will be a sort of a classic Asian handicap or maybe you know slightly smaller than that even, I'm thinking to myself, so the reality is, is the market thinks this, how likely am I to beat it by more than more than half its, its own perceived edge? And when I look at my golf back in the day, you know, when I was betting golf, you know, the markets that were routinely, well, back then priced up to 150, it wasn't uncommon for me on my win bets. 
which would have an average price of you know 40 to 1 or so whatever like it wasn't unusual for me to have 20 25 percent roi on those which again roughly coincided with about 50 percent of the overall confidence value of them and people think to the, so people think to themselves oh the bigger the margin you know the harder it is to beat bigger mm. the bigger the margin the less confidence the market has and it then becomes a question of where have they distributed the margin and how have they distributed it because- would that mean that it would make sense to just completely ignore anything at 1.1 1.2 even if you have an edge I I can't uh, top of my head right now. I couldn't say. I know that the kind of people I've experienced who do trade in that range trade very much on the principle of, you know, if I make something one point, you know, if the market's one point one eight, you know, they're not betting if they make it one point one five. Even if right. even if Kelly says, you know, you should be having a massive lump on this, you know, in that situation, it tends to be the kind of stuff where they're like, no, no, that they haven't realised that the only uncert, the only variance in this, like tennis, like tennis often has to price in the probability of someone not giving a shit or getting injured or so, being. So the the margin of error now becomes a significant issue down at very small odds. Yeah, and, right. and and you get this situation where it's like, okay, so the market's saying it's Pickham if the guy's carrying an injury, or it's 101. You know, Nadal, first round of the French Open. Well, if he's got strapping everywhere, basically the market has to pick up, it's, again, we're going back to bimodal. There's like 9,000 matches, where 9,000 multiverses where he's not injured, and he wins 6-1, 6-love, six 6-1. Six and then how many multiverses are there out there where actually this is a proper injury and and the market tends to always tends to largely overestimate uncertainty in those situations which means that you get the situation where he might be 105 and maybe always betting him in those situations probably is ev i mean one of the great exponents of this once upon a time was harry finley who um at one point made a, a real substantial amount of money particularly with snooker was a great example was he was betting people who in those days were offered in sort of betting shops. You know, Steve Davis was offered at like five on and he was a hundred on, just bollocks. But no, no, no one ever bet five on. Yeah. So you may as well get as much out of the punt who wants to back the four to one, the other bloke. So they knew that like, it's almost like you just couldn't lay these really short prices. And he, he figured out that you could call up bookmakers and say, I'd like a hundred grand. And they licked their lips. Like we'll oh, take it. We've, we've seen these people get chinned before. We've seen these lose before. And he, he openly admits, I think, that you know when Betfair started to become really liquid, these prices just collapsed. People were suddenly realizing, oh, shit, you know, Steve Davis is 101 against this clown over 17 frames or whatever, you know. Um, and so, yeah, so the, the sort of the edge in that went. But, um, but by and large, it's, it's funny. I, I, meet very, I meet very few professional gamblers of any description – who I meet market makers who are trading around those prices because they trade prices all the time on Betfair. But I meet very few people who are selective at targeting who actively go into that area. And yet you we think- had a look at the we had a look at the both teams to score in the first half coupon. Um, 
at um, a couple of the bookmakers. Um, and we modeled these across all the English leagues ourselves, got no exchange market. So we went into the XG and we've got the game center to do that. And we get the coupon and we type it up and you've got on average, yes, a, um, four to one, five to one, and no, a one to six, one to five, some, you know, down in that region. And then we ranked everything by EV. And I was amazed when I saw the outcome. It was literally the set of no's at the top half of the table and the set of yeses at the bottom half of the table. Uh, I wondered if that was just bias being put in. The bookmakers are like, you know, everybody's betting on action to happen. Uh, so we're going to make all of the higher odds worse value and all of the lower odds um, better value. Um, and it killed the edge, unfortunately, because they have PTL limits on 300 pounds per slip, whether you're betting to win a million pounds or at the, you know, with uh, 50 quid, unfortunately. So, so did, I mean, was the edge killed just in terms of the effort or was it killed because they then adjusted pricing? No, the edge was killed because we can't stake high enough because yeah. once it's down at one to six and we can only get 300 pounds on the coupon, then you can't win any money. You, you can win 50 quid. Even if you put them in multiples, you'll, you'll win a few hundred pounds and so that therefore the effort of going to the shop and betting on these things in in multiples wasn't worth uh wasn't worth it anymore whereas you know when we can bet even up to 10 to 1 we can win five figures and get around sort of limits with our parlays and our multiples as we discussed about earlier but it, it just fascinated me that it was the table was exactly all the team's not to score in the first half at the top and then all the teams to score in the first half at the bottom. Yes, it was a weird run. The, the, the funny thing is, it reminds me of, so I, I wasn't around for, for betting tax. Um, <laughs> but um, but people t- used to, people who were around used to joke about the idea of throwing in a really short-priced outcome in a, into a double with the thing they wanted to do. And the joke was, pays for the tax. So the idea was is that you, you, you threw yeah. it you threw in a one point one shot five. With, yeah. your, with your with your horse and the idea was that somehow this extra squidge of EV you know would pay for the tax and um, I, I, I how how easy is it for you to place a bet on something you make genuine EV and whack both teams to score no into the slip. Um, impossible in, with that coupon. Impossible because no. it was specific oh, it's to. A coupon. It's a coupon. It's a it's a football coupon specifically in both teams to score first half. I, so I, yeah, I'd be intrigued if you put it in on a SSBT machine or one of the other machines. Whether like, see if it would accept it. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, the moment you get bets going into a separate bucket for analysis, like then suddenly they're not looked at, right? So you know, I, I would I would challenge the very few bookmakers. Do they look at doubles? Yeah, some do. Do they look at trebles? Less likely. How many people look at a fourfold? Hardly any. I very, mm. find it very hard. The only time at Sport Radar we found ourselves analysing multiples to any great degree was with ITF Tennis pre-match because the pricing was such a shower of shit and there were so many moody matches that literally people were like, mate, you, you do like 200 of these matches a day because there's so much shit tennis. The idea that I could only find four or five ricks is is laughable. I could probably, you know, put ten in a multiple and it'd be the biggest EV ever kind of thing. So I've I've heard this before that ITF is one of the hardest things to price up on mass. And why is that? Why is it so difficult? So I mean, very small data sets um, generally. So we you know think about 
people in ITF. We have people who have played forever and never got above it, but they just can't help themselves. There's people who suddenly decide they're going to try it, like Paolo Maldini turning up at one, you know, like age. There's people who suddenly ran. Did, did he? I've never heard that. Did Paolo Maldini turn up on the, ten- um, on the tennis tour? Um, he played one, maybe it was just a doubles match, but like you get these random people. Mm-hmm. Like, I remember, remember watching one match where like this 50-year-old woman had just signed up because they couldn't fill the draw or something like that in some tin pot. And she just turned up and like she looked like you know, just the Waitrose mums having a knockabout kind of thing. It was, it was just, um, it was brilliant. But, um, but yeah, then you've got kids, 18-year-old kids, you've got no idea. Like the college tennis system in America is pretty decent, right? You get some really, bizarrely, none of these people, America doesn't produce a lot of great professional tennis players as it stands currently, but you'll get some kids who play like high school tennis, and like pretty decent, like some like rangy six foot four kid who's got like a bullet serve. And he'll just turn up at like one of these small US ITFs, you know, look up on Wikipedia, doesn't have a page, you know, can't even find out the guy's height, anything like that. The first time you see the guy is when he turns up on TV and he's raking in like these 130 mile per hour serves. You're like, oh. So you've got incredibly small data sets. Some people like, you'll get these people who like born in Spain and they've got like 20 matches. Like, okay, 20 matches, we can work with that. You know, you can probably get an ELO out of that kind of thing. And then like they're now playing on hard and they've never played a match on hard ever. And you're like, oh, I don't know how well that translates. Probably all right. Make a fudge. Um, and then you've got people who just very obviously are, you know, have made a career out of doing certain fixes. Although these matches tend to be less and less priced up now, but you had to factor that in. And then the other thing is, is that they play this blistering schedule when you play ITF. So quite often they're playing the doubles and singles draws like seconds apart. To the extent that quite often, like if time scheduling gets fucked, they drop out of one or the other, depending on where they think they're going to, or they just absolutely tank in one because they don't think they're going to get any further versus the other one. So you've got constant effort issues, data size issues, um, general shithousery issues. Yeah, it's, it's just, it's very hard to do. But the funny thing is, is that being very disciplined to create a, like, I don't know how well you know the the guys that win are odds. I mean, Pete Ling's a big fan. Yeah. You yeah. know, I've, 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 I'm fascinated. I, again, it's, it's the artificial intelligence phrase is coming. I don't know what artificial intelligence it is. I'm fascinated to know what it is and how it's working though. Um, but, you know, I think the thing is, is that what they do, how well it would work as a bookmaking product is tough, right? Because adverse selection <laughs> suggests that you only ever get hit when you're wrong. Mm-hmm. However, as a systematized, methodical prudent data methodology being able to constantly pick out value bets i have absolutely no doubt because the idea that anyone's made huge efforts to do that for itf which is largely considered mm. a live live betting product it's fodder it's 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 the greyhounds of central europe kind of thing um <laughs> yeah. so um so yeah so as to you know they, they should be able to mm. to beat that quite easily for for some time um, yeah, as to it's funny because when they, they they do use machine learning, I often think to myself, to me, tennis is just you know finding out how likely you are to win your service point and multiplying it out, right? Bit of momentum built in, whatever. It just seems like when I think of machine learning, I'm thinking, okay, so where's the machine learning going to? Okay, evaluating. Yeah, what, what is it searching for? Evaluating yeah. for are they calculating that service hold basis a load of data columns and i'm just thinking to myself generally i I look at past matches adjust for surface adjust Mm -hmm. for opponent strength you know it's it's weird like i i i 
I don't know whether they do it because it obviously is sexy or, you know, in cells or whether they do it because genuinely they found this thing which says, you know, hair color plus, you know, birthplace plus whatever else goes in the in the AI has, has found some massive predictive uh, elements. I don't know. I mean, it's... Um... Are, you familiar, are you familiar at all with Nishikori on Twitter? Yes. Yeah, when I was on Twitter, yeah, familiar. Yeah. Um, you are name-checked in um, Joseph Buchdahl's book, Monte Carlo or Bust, who he has a chapter on um, winning and beating the closing line. And then he shows an example of Nishikori, who is winning and isn't beating the closing line. And he says he can't offer up a um, reasonable explanation as to how this can be, but perhaps somebody like Matthew Trenhill would be able to. Are you able to issue up an explanation of how Nishikori can be winning without beating the closing line? Well, well, first off, I ought to say I had no idea my name appeared in the book. I'm incredibly <laughs> disappointed Joseph hasn't sent me a free copy. Um <laughs> because of that but um but you know maybe i'll have to buy it now um yeah i mean let, let's let you know cl- closing line right so closing line va- you know to get closing line value what have you done all you have done is you have basically got a lower risk appetite than the major market dominant forces that drive the price to its final resting point basically if I want to beat the closing line, all I have to do is mimic the methodologies used by the people that drive price discovery and bet before they do, which basically means I'm willing to bet smaller generally than they are. You know, I, I've made that sound like it's, you know, super fucking piece of piss, right? But the, generally what someone's It's done, a concept I think we do in the football coupons. We're not doing anything too clever other than we're, we're, we're assuming that we're betting on something where... We, the patterns are going to suggest that the closing line is going to be beaten. You know, um, and, 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 and there, are, there are ways of doing that. Yeah, you know, so the, the closing the closing line should be the optimal, the sort of the the optimal balance point of multiple opinions with skin in the game, who it really matters to, and if all of the biggest hitters in your market all use roughly similar methodologies, this kind of price discovery actually happens quite rapidly. Like, so let's say the whole world uses a basic, like Poisson-style football model based on, you know, the average number of goals scored for and against, home and away, last 20 games, whatever. Then literally it becomes just a race for the person who has put together their calculations and feeds into market fastest. And if mm-hmm. that is the best possible model that can be achieved with current available data, then and there's three people who do it with slight tweaks. Their slight tweaks are probably, you know, sometimes one gets it right, sometimes one gets it right, the other one gets it right. They average out their slight deviations. We create this closing line. And closing line in particular, you know, we is, is often talked about, particularly for the American perspective. And you notice that all their sports lend themselves to being modeled in a very similar way, to the extent even that, you know, even even basketball, like, so we think of time decay, but basketball at the top level is modeled by possession. So even then, it's kind of like, yes, there's time, but that time just dictates how many possessions are going to be played, and that number of possessions is dictated by the pace of the teams that choose to play. But you know, baseball, it's sequential. There's, the, I mean, the sabermetricians sort of modeled 
baseball like decades ago in a sense um and so and then for american football you know everything is done in a set piece play by play so everyone's got huge data sets in these american sports with these huge data sets that all there's only so many different ways you can statistically analyze this data until new data comes out so like with baseball we had pitch fx data which came out or maybe slightly better weather data to get ballpark weather information in. But generally, once this stuff is included, there's only, you know, it's like, I've found out something that's better than linear regression. It's like, really? I mean, how much better is it? You know, like, how many, how how can you much can you reinvent the wheel? And so, basically, the closing line is, you know, good in American sports, but it is the product of all the big hitters using similar models to create their outputs. Now, in tennis, again, most people will be using some form of um, basically Markov chain model to model out how you know likely someone is to win their point on serve, multiply them out, put it through, and they will adjust their elos. You know, elo naturally adjusts for opponent strength, but they might have different elos by surface. They might have different court speed adjustments. You know. I've seen some people break it down by round of the tournament. The idea that you know certain players' rating evolves as they get deeper into the tournament, maybe taking you know, all these things. But essentially, we're still revolving around that base of Markov chain, which is trying to establish, you know, service hold percentages. And the service hold percentages are generally calculated by looking at the last x number of serves that players made within that context, whatever that context may be. So. Let's say you're someone who comes into that market and you don't have, you know, X millions that's turned over on, you know, you don't have the biggest bankroll on the planet, right? Um, you know, all the big tennis modelers, you know, do, they're driving the Betfair price, the Pinnacle price, wherever it may be. Now, if you're the guy who basically just goes on tour and looks to see whether the player's been out in the nightclub the night before they're supposed to play their first round match, A, you're skill you know will never be in the modelers that you're trying to do and so sometimes you may beat the closing line just because they agree with you and sometimes they won't now does that null and void the reason i use the nightclub one is because there was this guy brilliantly on twitter years ago who i remember i was like betting on tennis a bit at the time and he said this is brilliant look at this and he posted an instagram photo in bucharest at four in the morning <laughs> of, of the player who was due to be on court in like five hours time i didn't know this but apparently romania used to be because of like quite a good party spot for the atp tour once upon a time and right. so, so like i was just like thought to myself now that's an edge i don't, yeah, I don't, right, I don't, yeah. I don't know and what that, the maths is but that feels like an edge <laughs> and that can't be modeled it cannot be beaten if you've got that information that's priceless isn't it yeah. so um so yeah so this closing this closing line um this this closing line value then you know so what is Nishikori's now if Nishikori said to me basically what I do is I aggregate you know the last hundred thousand points worth of data and blah 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 I'd be like thinking to myself yeah mate you you've got to be you've got to be beating the closing line in that situation but I never mm. really I never really interviewed him heavily about his and if his hedge and invariably these these people who maybe will not see clear closing line value are the people whose edge is non mathematically derived. And, yeah, and comes yeah. from their enjoyment of the sport and watching the sport a lot and understanding the nuances of the sport and understanding when people are, you know, 
tennis um, fatigue is accumulative, right? So mm. people can sort of perform at 90% of their level and it looks like they're playing great. And then suddenly after five games or whatever, they, they fall off a cliff. Mm. And if you're the kind of person that has observed how long players can stay fit for, how much they like traveling, all the rest of it, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of you know, tennis in particular, which is like heavily, you can't lean on your teammates, can you? You're alone in a hotel room. Maybe your coach is there. You're alone on the court. You know, golf and tennis, like it's a huge amount of self, you know, pressured, you know, psychology going on there. And I would say that, um, you know, th this is sort of particularly relevant. The other thing is, is that you can target areas where there's like low amounts of data. So early on in the season, classic example, you might not get closing line value early on in the season. If you're just looking, if you if you basically know, like if there's players that have got very little data, but you know more about them, you know, that's a window. You know, if, you know, if suddenly um, you knew that they were trialing new books, so like tennis has different balls have slightly different behaviors. Um, so if you knew, for example, that, you know, this ball, you know, bounces more erratically. I don't know, whatever the fuck. You know, I'm just sort of, you know, but there's, there's definitely... But, but that ties in very well with what we were saying earlier, how England Andorra is so much more attractive than Chelsea versus Liverpool. Yeah, 100%. And the people who bet that I know very successfully in large volume on those bigger games um, generally deploy the market is probably right about these markets. I'm going to try and calculate the derivatives mm -hmm. as best I can, which again is something you're very very familiar with so yes would i say nishikori is it possible for nishikori or anyone who is like a sport watcher slash you know understands would i say that they those people benefit from kelly almost never because it's very hard to quantify edges like that do i mm -hmm. think those people can flat bet and not get closing line value you know it's like it's really hard to think of the english premier league being modeled by anything other than player-based models using xg because, yeah. we, because we don't have more data yet, maybe, but it's really hard for me to think. So as long as your methodology is different to that, then you arguably, and, and all the richest people in the world are using that method, you know, absolutely. So, yeah, so I, I, I find this, you know, you know at, at the end of the day, if you think that what you're doing is basically doing what other smart people are doing, like if you basically, if you read it in a white paper, chances are there's already someone doing it pretty well. So you better downgrade your expectation as to when you can yeah. bet. You better bet early. And I mean, what's the great one? So the great one is, um, so what I love is this guy, Mike, who runs a service called Fox Punter. Are you familiar with Fox Punter? No, I haven't heard of it. So, so he runs basically, he used to, once upon a time, do a lot of like XG tables for like English leagues. And um, he like put in a lot of, from my external position, like put in a lot of graft, you know, trying to, you know, you know, mining the football data website, Joseph's site, you know, to get the shots and create these, all these tables. And I think he did quite well in sort of the tipster space in terms of, you know, tracked record, looked good, posted stuff. And then he kind of went black for a while. And then he came back and he'd had this huge effort he put into doing, um, learning about Myers-Briggs. Are you familiar with Myers-Briggs? This is the name of the bell, but I couldn't I couldn't describe it to you. So personality types, right? Oh yes, yes, it is. Yeah, it's um, it's um, if you think 
the, the people that know nothing think they know the most kind of shape of a graph, isn't it? That 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 is that is that, but it's sort of it's it's also you know people who are inherently cautious or aggressive or like these kind of things, and he basically monitored a load of manager interviews, particularly lower level football, and Myers Briggs profiled every football manager in the English leagues, and then applied this to betting, and. He's not proofed by SBC, so I have to be careful what I say. He's not proofed as I know. But from what I understand from other people, some of whom pay for the service, it's it's going pretty fucking well, like as in astronomically well. So That's an amazing angle to that so what he's just scrapped the traditional absolutely. the traditional modeling that everyone's done and just a completely different angle and come at it from that direction. Completely different angle yeah. and, and and basically backed himself to think the market won't incorporate this information. Mm-hmm. Ergo, I will, you know, go with it. Now what I find even more crazy is if you type Myers Briggs into Google, you'll find an awful lot of people who go, This is bullshit voodoo wankery <laughs> you know like it's the worst thing ever like personality profiling in general has got a lot of flack generally but you know as someone you know as again another friend of mine once said you know it's like the wizard of oz i don't want to see behind the curtain because if someone's given you like five percent ev picks for the last five years and then they told you that they do it by the player's birth signs you're Amazing. like oh, yeah, exactly. fuck, i can't do i can't, bet, I can't bet it again no, I'm you know, <laughs> despite your five-year so it's like no, sort of, no, but um but, but yeah i am fascinated by that idea of um and the funny thing is is that then you think to yourself like i don't know what mike the fox ponte guy is doing necessarily but i don't think to myself if this became known as a really big edge, well, then there's someone who's going to do like NLP on it, right? Isn't that like going to look as you get transcripts of these interviews and they're going to look for certain keywords and they're going to start like the moment an edge becomes recognized, that's when the computer, longer an edge. Well, the computers yeah. swarm in and pick it apart. Mm-hmm. And do you know what? There may be even a period where they really abuse the edge massively. Mm-hmm. Like I remember when I was in finance, when people first started doing algorithms that would scan uh, news announced transcripts that were po- posted and they would look for keywords within the the news announcements. So if there was a news announcement that said economy fucked, they'd be like, okay, economy plus fucked equals sell market or you know whatever it was. And yeah. these people at one point, I mean, literally the edge was just, they must have literally just retired within six months when they first launched them. And then eventually everyone, like, funny thing is, is the first people who do it, you know, looking at Betamax VHS or whatever, like first people who do it or Yahoo, Google, whatever you want to, whichever one you want to use, first people who do it never have optimized the crap out of the problem. It's always the second person who optimizes the crap out of the problem. And then, yeah. and then actually, but yeah, so there's this period where they must've made money. Then someone ate their lunch and that person who ate their lunch, who optimized it made mega money. And then finally the edge sort of dissipates as lots of, it gets crowded out. Everyone starts doing it, but um. But yeah, so yeah, so going back, if Joseph's listening, I'd say it is conceivable that someone could not have closing lines CLV in something like ATP tennis and still be profitable. Just by using a massively different concept of a model to everyone else. Yeah. Um, if I, if so, Bet Tom's going to offer you um, the odds of 10,000 to 1 on these two different events. Um, wrapping up the tennis. The first one will be Emma Raducanu to win the. Um, to win the US Open 2-0 without dropping a cent ever in every single game. And the second one will be Leicester to win the Premiership um, in 2015. Um, 
maximum one pound. Would you like either of those bets, or are you going to swerve them both? Um, this will sound like um, I wouldn't like either of them because each one of them is heavily dependent on me coming up with a good understanding of momentum and and sort of volatility within what I'm what I'm betting on. So Radicanu had inherently more volatility, didn't she? Because it was sort of COVID year, um, COVID impacted year. Um, and Leicester had, you know, I think the key thing is just to look at how many teams underperformed like expected points totals. Like how often do multiple teams fail all at once? I guess. Um, and so I, I couldn't, you know, th- you know, in the sense that a pound's a pound, who gives a shit? Yeah, I'll have it, have a pound. <laughs> no, listen, if you think it's negative EV, keep the pound in it, your pocket. Right, happy in, in, in terms of, yeah, could I, um, could, could I, uh, justify it? No. However, one thing I do know is, is that I can also say, um, you know, I, I would say that whatever EV, let's say you're someone who did make it positive EV, either of those situations, let's say you're someone who actually made Radicanu positive EV or Leicester positive EV before the start of the tournament. If you make them positive EV then, I guarantee you there'll be a better opportunity to back them later on. Like, if you make something value at huge prices, invariably what you're doing is is you're, think, you're basically thinking that you're better at pricing in the uncertainty, the volatility, the variance than the market. They're thinking there's more outcomes at the tail end of the distribution than the market thinks. Now, I guarantee you that the market always, the financial markets, you name it, governments, whatever it is, they they don't realize the truck's about to hit them until it fucking hits them. <laughs> so the funny thing is, is I spoke to all the people I knew and I was like, I, I sort of spoke to all these pro punters like, oh, you know, d- no, jokingly, did you back Leicester, you know, before the start of the season? Mm. Like, no, mate, no, not even close. Well, they were taught by Christmas. Asked all the pro punters, were you on by mm. February? Absolutely mm. piled in <laughs> up to their eyeballs. So, like, loads of people made huge fortunes um, mm. on that Leicester winning the thing, but hardly any of them were on at the but, quote fancy prices. Yeah. And the, but same the bookmakers way, just did not adjust. They went back to the, they didn't rebase properly. They didn't, exactly, no rebase. And, and, and again, Radakan would be exactly the same in that. Mm. Um, People and the funny thing is, is everyone. Leicester's tricky, right? Because it was harder to. You'd watch Leicester play, and they had certain players that you're like, "Wow, these players really are very good." Um, But you still had in your mind the injury conundrum, right? And so you had in your mind, and maybe people didn't know quite the lengths that Leicester went to prevent injury. You know, they got big into all the cryotherapy, which some people think is bullshit, but I don't know. You know, they got into all sorts of things like to sort of prolong. So I think a lot of that may have just been various, but there was unseen things that would be hard. You could only have the matches to watch on unless you're an insider. And you may be like, uh, there are only one or two key injuries away here from, you know, from failing. Radicanu, mm. I feel like there were people who were watching her matches and thinking, fuck, this, this girl is, you know, we can project her future ELO to be about 200 points higher because, you know, she hits the ball so cleanly you know, she clears to be full of confidence, you know, blah, blah, all this sort of slightly fluffy, airy, fairy stuff, but also like, look, where she 
you know, aggressively serving on second. So all these thick classical things that you look at and you think those are the hallmarks of someone who does become very good long-term at playing tennis. And so I think that, but by contrast, I would say also that the market probably did. I didn't look at the prices in depth, but I reckon the market probably did catch up with Raducanu being good, but then they also rely on people over overshooting the mark, right? So the bookmakers sort of, again, they're still trying to average in. They're like, oh, I've rebased Raducanu enough. She can't, I mean, she's not Venus, yeah. you know, she's not Serena Williams, is she? And then it turns out, yeah, for one month, you know, she is Serena she Williams. She was, you know, so. and then she wasn't again. So, I mean, it's such a freak. Yeah, you know. But, um, but of course, if they, they, they do rebase and they go too far, Mr. Shrewd comes in and he starts taking the opposite side and everything reds up. It's, um, listen, uh, you mentioned that um, you were back on Twitter and you said, hopefully you'll stay on Twitter without losing your mind. How did that go? Yeah, it went badly because obviously I'm not on not on Twitter anymore, am I? Um, <laughs> I didn't know that. Um, my Our marketing girl um, asked um, what your Twitter account was and I just said to search for you and she was saying you can't, she couldn't find you. Um, why is that, may I ask? Um, again, I mean, it's just... Uh... A, you know, I have a, a very addictive personality. Social media, as a rule, generally has not been good good for me. I, I've become fixated on it, and uh, it's you know not a not a healthy relationship, shall we say? Um, and on top of that, you know, when I am when I was on it, I had to ask myself how much value was I getting out of it relative to other. You know, time is finite. You know, if, mm. if I spend you know, 45 minutes doom scrolling Twitter um, and getting often angry. Because I'm, I'm one of these people that just can't let anything lie. You know, I, I have to, yeah. I have to jump in both, both feet in and I wasn't yeah. getting anything pleasurable about it. You know, like, as I said to someone, there's no payoff on Twitter. You know, no, no one really ever turns around who disagrees with you and says, I've had a think about. Oh, you're right. And yeah, yeah, that's, that's absolutely. You know, so if you, mm-hmm. and, and if you're one of these people, I had I had to realise that it's it's an ego thing, right? It's a narcissism. I, mm-hmm. I want people to pat me on the back and say you're so clever, you're so right, and you, that is a very bad relationship to have with 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 another human, with social media, mm-hmm. with your dog, with with you know. Well, dogs are different, right? Dogs always think you're right. It's a lovely thing about them, but you know, generally, <laughs> you know the, you know, I I, I couldn't have a good. Um, a good usage of it and people would tell me like what about networking and stuff like that and maybe i just got lucky in that i'd sort of grown my network to the extent mm-hmm. that even now without social media people are still introduced I-, I tried to put myself out there like in the physical world when possible as well but you know th- there's enough people who seem to come to me and want to chat that maybe i don't feel as much of a need. And so it was, it was an easy, ultimately I I sort of, I regretted it quite early after going back on. And then I started to realize this is, this is not just not going to work for me. Um, But yeah, so when I I was doing some of the doom scrolling the other day, there was, um, there was a conversation around, look, look, whatever your opinions on, on um, lockdowns and coronavirus, and there are people with arguments on both sides and, um, and, Whatever side of the argument you're on isn't important to the context of this. What it was is the person posting was a 77-year-old doctor and astronaut. This guy was a medical doctor 
who had trained as an astronaut and been to space and was commenting on something to do with how serious he thought the coronavirus was. And somebody had come along and just um, uh, and sort of anonymously with no name, completely rubbished everything that he was saying. And it was all a hoax and the X, Y, Z. And then um, he started arguing with the guy. And the part of it I found interesting was why are you wasting the energy on the person arguing with you? Um, uh, and I can 100% see how it just turns into a complete waste of time. In fact, the folder on my phone that I have to open to get into Twitter is a folder that says waste, which stands for waste of time so that I know what's happening when I go into that platform. Oh, this, is, this is worryingly tragic about how, um, how, how we must be quite similar. What do I call mine? Oh, I call mine distraction, um, which, yeah. which actually has just like, I actually put my internet browser in it. As well as okay, as, so as, you don't, as well yeah. as games, but um, mm. but yeah, I, and but you know, I'm, I know I bite, I know I'm too emotional, I know mm. I, you know, and I'm, I'm, I, so I have all the sort of I suppose self awareness necessary to realise that to, it's not, it's not, it, it's not going to end well. So therefore, <laughs> therefore, the final final thing to do is actually pull the trigger on it. I guess so, jump uh, before you're pushed. Yeah. yeah, I have the thing. I don't know if you do this. I've turned into grumpy old dad these days. Um, every time I go out for dinner, either with the family or even friends who are my own age, um, I bring a little bag with me and I ask everyone to t- take the phone and put it in the bag. Uh, and then we'll just put that to one side and then we can actually be in each other's company for a little bit of time. Some people do it, some people don't, but um, I like doing that. I like, you know you know what the, the like the Silicon Valley trendy version of that is, though? There's like Go these mini, mini Faraday cage boxes, aren't there? That actually, right, okay. that actually well, you, you can put in the middle of the table and you sort of like shut them and then no, no signal can get in kind of thing or whatever. You know, obviously the people who buy this haven't heard of airplane mode. Um, yeah, and, right. And, okay. and I, want to, I want to spend a lot of money on a bit of tech, but um, yeah, yeah. But, but yeah, um, I, I, you know what, I, um, I completely get that, and I, I, I often, mm-hmm. I often think to myself, I look back, you know, particularly, you know, how when I was constantly scrolling, I mean, I was, I'm still locked into my phone now, but when I was constantly scrolling Twitter, you know, I, I, it must have been just awful for my wife, right? It must have been just, mm-hmm. just terrible for her to watch me just zombify over this and not, not only that but it was something that used to wind me up so and i i often think to myself that when i've whenever i meet up with friends i, I really want to you know I, I really want to sort of cut that you know smartphone element out of whatever we're doing the fun, be present the, the funny I mean, one, one, one example on, one, one, one exception to that is if i'm with a load of people who gamble and they've had a mass, <laughs> massive chunk on something i i, 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 I sometimes will say all right Get the race up on Bet three six five. We'll all sit here, watch it on the phone, and then after that, you know, at least tell me what you're cheering, and then, then I can I can cheer it on as well. And then after that, we can go back to whatever we were doing. You know, that seems like the, you know, but um, but yeah, that, that that's sort of the one time. But other than that, just the idea that like even when like there's four people and three people are talking about something, that person then thinks, oh, I'm not needed here. I'll check out and I'll just go on my phone. And it, yeah, yeah. Is, is there anything wrong with that? Not really, but at the same time, there's part of me thinking: if you're not listening to the conversation, how could you ever not jump in and say, "Oh, by the way, you know, like I don't know, yeah, you know, it's it, you know, yeah. a, a lot of as you say, grumpy old man. A lot, I'm sure a lot of young people just tell me to get fucked. But. Smoke smoking did that though as well. But, but you you you'll be the same age as me. We remember the days where you can smoke in offices, let alone in pubs and restaurants. And then all of a sudden, 
for us non-smoke, I used to smoke a long, long time ago, but stopped whilst you could still smoke in um, pubs and restaurants. Um, and then all of a sudden, the government said that all the smokers had to go outside, and everyone was still smoking. And I was just sat there, but, but everyone's now gone. Uh, uh, so I would just go and stand outside with all of the smokers to maintain the conversation. Um, look, um, but, well, uh, it's the week before Christmas just now, uh, but by the time this comes out, it'll probably just be a few days beforehand uh, so i have one final question to you and it is the most important question that i've asked in the uh the better last better part of um two hours um number one christmas song of all time please i don't i don't want to give it too much um i don't want to give it too much thought i, I I'll, I'll give you i'll give you where i'm between because okay. because of my age, I'm between E17 and E17. Um, stay another day. Yeah, so I'm between that, but then also because it must be so close to cancel culture, you know, bait. What's the one with Griff Reese Jones? Um, do I mean Griff Reese Jones? Oh. Around the Christmas tree. Wow, why can't I remember the bloody um? No, people are going to be thinking this is really good audio. <laughs> not, not, not Grief Reese Jones. Um, uh, I'm, 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 I've gone silent because I can picture the two of them. It's the comedians, and it's Kim Wilde. Yes, is that right? Yes, that one. And, and I can't think of the name of the tune and, either. And, and the funny thing is. Um, a, it was a weird one that for a while, when I, in my very first job, someone I sat with used to, uh, every time December came around, used to sing along or hum it around, occasionally changing the uh, the words a little bit. Um, and so that sort of stuck in my head a lot. But also, um, uh, rocking around the Christmas tree. That's right. Uh, Kim Wilde and Mel. Kim, Mel and Kim. Mel and Kim. Mm-hmm. Um and and yeah so anyway um it's not you got to pick one it's not Griffiths Jones um I'm do you know what I'll it's, pop yeah, it's, Mel, it's Mel Smith and Kim Wilde Mel Smith yeah. yeah so so um Mel yeah Mel Smith does basically a lot of slight semi uh semi creepy man, like old man <laughs> stuff that wouldn't be acceptable nowadays um I'm gonna There's go I, I, I'm, I'm gonna go with E17 I think I'm gonna go with E17 he ran over his own foot Brian Harvey. When he was driving his car, yeah. his own foot. Do, 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 do you know what was funny about that? Is uh, someone someone said to me, like laughingly, like, um, like, oh yeah, you know, because he was obviously having trouble with his then, I want to say, wife or girlfriend, whoever it was. He said, yeah, yeah, he he ran himself with his own car, and uh, I remember for a long time saying to myself, I just don't know how you do that. Did, no, like, no, logistically, how do you price something like that up? Is that one of the odds of somebody running over themselves? Because the car has to be moving, and then you have to get out of the car whilst it's moving, whilst you're driving it. But but, you? but then someone said to me, well, obviously, like, the missus who was angry with him hit him with the car. No, I think he... Oh, I, I always thought the story was he was driving the car and then ran over his own foot, but that would make more sense. Well, but someone said to me, like, how... Like, if you're if the police turn up at your house, it's like Tiger Woods. I hit myself in the head with a nine iron. You know, it's like... <laughs> it's, it's like... It's one of those things where it's like, um, you know, someone said to me, like, do, do you honestly think that... what what How did that work then? Did he just roll out the car, 
run round to the front, lie down, like, and I thought to myself, well, I never really thought about it. I spent a lot of time thinking about how one does run. And this person was adamant. They said clearly they didn't. He didn't run himself over. That's clearly the excuse he gave when uh, when his missus was angry with him and drove the car at him. And I'm like, so now, well, now I want people to tell me which is true. Now I'm, you've put doubts in my mind about what what the, how did Brian Harvey get run over? Yeah. May I, may I ask you, um, how long has it been since you saw the music video for Stay Another Day by E17? Um, oh, I don't know, a decade probably. Okay, listen, do me a favour. After we finish this, go onto YouTube and just watch it. I caught it the other day, and I don't remember it being so outrageous. I mean, fur coats, are you? well... I can hardly describe it. It is an absolute pleasure to watch that video. Uh, Matthew, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the Bashcast for the last couple of hours. Really informative, really great chat. I always love it when I try and aim for 40 minutes and then three times that amount of uh, time progresses and I think we could have gone on for another hour. So thank you very much. Pleasure. Pleasure.